Chapter 5, verse 27 through 37 of Catina Aria, Commentary on the Four Gospels Collected Out of the Works of the Fathers by St. Thomas Aquinas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Verse 27 and 28. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her, hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. Chrysostom. The Lord, having explained how much is contained in the first commandment, namely, Thou shalt not kill, proceeds in regular order to the second. Augustine. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is, thou shalt not go where but to thy lawful wife. For if you exact this of your wife, you ought to do the same. For their husband ought to go before the wife in virtue. It is a shame for the husband to say that this is impossible. Why not the husband as well as the wife? And let not him that is unmarried suppose that he does not break the commandment by fornication. You know the price wherewith you have been bought. You know what you eat and what you drink. Therefore keep yourself from fornications. For inasmuch as all such acts of lust pollute and destroy God's image, which you are, the Lord who knows what is good for you gives you this precept that you may not pull down his temple, which you have begun to be. Id. He then goes on to correct the error of the Pharisees, declaring, Whoso looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. For the commandment of the law, Thou shalt not lust after thy neighbor's wife, the Jews understood of taking her away, not of committing adultery with her. Jerome. Between pathos and propathia, that is, between actual passion and the first spontaneous movement of the mind, there is a difference. Passion is at once a sin. The spontaneous movement of the mind, though it partakes of the evil of sin, is not yet held for an offense committed. When, then, one looks upon a woman, and his mind is therewith smitten, there is propassion. If he yields to this, he passes from propassion to passion, and then it is no longer the will but the opportunity to sin that is wanting. Whosoever, then, that looketh on a woman to lust after her, that is, so looks on her as to lust, and cast about to obtain, he is rightly said to commit adultery with her in his heart. Augustine, for there are three things which make up a sin, suggestion either through the memory or the present state. If the thought of the pleasure of indulgence follows, that is an unlawful thought, and to be restrained. If you consent, then, the sin is complete. For prior to the consent, the pleasure is either none or very slight, the consenting to which makes the sin. But if consent proceeds on into overt act, then desire seems to be satiated and quenched. And when suggestion is again repeated, the contemplated pleasure is greater, which previous to habit formed was but small, but now more difficult to overcome. Gregory. But whoso casts his eyes about without caution, will often be taken with the pleasure of sin, and ensnared by desires, begins to wash for what he would not. Great is the strength of the flesh to draw us downwards, and the charm of beauty once admitted to the heart through the eye is hardly banished by endeavor. We must therefore take heed at the first. We ought not to look upon what it is unlawful to desire, for that the heart may be kept pure in thought, the eyes as being on the watch to hurry us to sin, should be averted from wanton looks. Chrysostom, if you permit yourself to gaze often on fair countenances, 
you will assuredly be taken, even though you may be able to command your mind twice or thrice. For if you are not exalted above nature and the strength of humanity, she too who dresses and adorns herself for the purpose of attracting men's eyes to her, though her endeavor should fail, yet shall she be punished hereafter, seeing she mixed the poison and offered the cup, though none was found to drink thereof. For what the Lord seems to speak only to the man is of equal application to the woman, inasmuch as when he speaks to the head, the warning is meant for the whole body. Verses 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Gloss. Because we ought not only to avoid actual sin, but even put away every occasion of sin, therefore having taught that adultery is to be avoided, not in deed only, but in heart, he next teaches us to cut off the occasions of sin, pseudo-chrysostom. But if, according to that of the prophet, there is no whole part in our body, it is needful that we cut off every limb, that we have that the punishment may be equal to the depravity of the flesh. Is it then possible to understand this of the bodily eye or hand? As the whole man, when he is turned to God, is dead to sin, so likewise the eye, when it has ceased to look evil, is cut off from sin. But this explanation will not suit the whole, for when he says, Thy right eye offends thee, what does the left eye? Does it contradict the right eye? And is preserved innocent? Jerome, therefore, by the right eye and the right hand, we must understand the love of brethren, husbands and wives, parents and kinsfolk, which, if we find to hinder our view of the true light, we ought to sever from us. Augustine, as the eye denotes contemplation, so the hand aptly denotes action. By the eye we must understand our most cherished friend, as they are wont to say who would express ardent affection. I love him as my own eye, and a friend, too, who gives counsel, as the eye shows us our way. The right eye, perhaps, only means to express a higher degree of affection, for it is the one which men most fear to lose. Or by the right eye may be understood one who counsels us in heavenly matters, and by the left one who counsels in earthly matters. And this will be the sense. Whatever that is which you love as you would your own right eye, if it offend you, that is, if it be a hindrance to your true happiness, cut it off and cast it from you. For if the right eye was not to be spared, it was superfluous to speak of the left. The right hand also is to be taken of a beloved assistant in divine actions, the left hand in earthly actions, pseudo-chrysostom. Otherwise, Christ would have us careful not only of our own sins, but likewise that even they who pertain to us should keep themselves from evil. Have you any friend who looks to your matters, as your own eye, or manages them as your own hand. If you know of any scandalous or base action that he has done, cast him from you. He is an offense. For we shall give an account not only of our sins, but also of such of those of our neighbors, 
as it is in our power to hinder. Hillary. Thus a more lofty step of innocence is appointed us, in that we are admonished to keep free, not only from sin ourselves, but from such as might touch us from without. Jerome. Otherwise, as above he had placed lust in the looking on a woman, so now the thought and sense, string hither and thither, he calls the eye. By the right hand and the other parts of the body, he means the initial movements of desire and affection. Pseudo-Chrysostom. The eye of the flesh is the mirror of the inward eye. The body also has its own sense, that is, the left eye and its own appetite, that is, the left hand. But the parts of the soul are called right, for the soul was created both with free will and under the law of righteousness, that it might both see and do rightly. But the members of the body, being not with free will, but under the law of sin, are called the left. Yet he does not bid us cut off the sense or appetite of the flesh. We may retain the desires of the flesh, and yet not do so thereafter. But we cannot cut off the having the desires. But when we willfully purpose and think of evil, then our right desires and right will offend us, and therefore he bids us cut them off. And these we can cut off, because our will is free. Or otherwise, in everything, however good in itself, that offends ourselves or others, we ought to cut off from us. For example, to visit a woman with religious purposes, this good intent towards her may be called a right eye. But if often visiting her, I have fallen into the net of desire, or if any looking on are offended, then the right eye, that is something in itself good, offends me. For the right eye is good intention, the right hand is good desire. Gloss. Or the right eye is the contemplative life, which offends by being the cause of indolence or self-conceit, or in our weakness, that we are not able to support it unmixed. The right hand is good works, or the active life, which offends us when we are ensnared by the society and business of life. If then anyone is unable to sustain the contemplative life, let him not slothfully rest from all action, or on the other hand, while he is taken up with action, dry up the fountain of sweet contemplation. Rigmig. The reason why the right eye and the right hand are to be cast away is subjoined in that, for it is better, etc. Pseudocrusostom. For, as we are every one members of one another, it is better that we should be saved without some one of these members than that we perish together with them. Or it is better that we should be saved without one good purpose or one good work than that while we seek to perform all good works, we perish together with all. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Gloss. The Lord had taught us above that our neighbor's wife was not to be coveted. He now proceeds to teach that our own wife is not to be put away. Jerome. For touching Moses' allowance of divorce, the Lord and Savior more fully explains in the conclusion that it was because of the hardness of the hearts of the husbands, not so much as sanctioning discord as checking bloodshed. Pseudo Chrysostom. 
For when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, they were indeed Hebrews in race, but Egyptians in manners. And it was caused by the Gentile manners that the husband hated the wife, and if he was not permitted to put her away, he was ready either to kill her or ill-treat her. Moses therefore suffered the bill of divorcement, not because it was a good practice in itself, but was the prevention of a worse evil. Hilary, but the Lord who brought peace and goodwill on earth would have it reign especially in the matrimonial bond. Augustine, the Lord's command here that a wife is not to be put away is not contrary to the command in the law, as Manichaeus affirmed. Had the law allowed any who would to put away his wife, to allow none to put away were indeed the very opposite of that. But the difficulty which Moses is careful to put in the way shows that he was no good friend to the practice at all, for he required a bill of divorcement, the delay and difficulty of drawing out which would often cool headlong rage and disagreement, especially as by the Hebrew custom it was the scribes alone who were permitted to use the Hebrew letters, in which they professed a singular skill. To these, then, the law would send him whom it bid to give a writing of divorcement, when he would put away his wife, who, meditating between him and his wife, might set them at one again, unless in minds too wayward to be moved by counsels of peace. Thus then he neither completed by adding words to it the law of them of old time, nor did he destroy the law given by Moses by enacting things contrary to it, as Manichaeus affirms, but rather repeated and approved all that the Hebrew law contained, so that whatever he spoke in his own person, more than it had, had in view either explanation, which in diverse obscure places of the law was greatly needed or the more punctual observance of its enactments. Id. By interposing this delay in the mode of putting away, the lawgiver showed as clearly as it could be shown to hard hearts that he hated strife and disagreement. The Lord then so confirms this backwardness in the law as to accept only one case, the cause of fornication. Every other inconvenience which may have a place he bids us bear with patience and consideration of the plighted troth of wedlock. Pseudo Chrysostom. If we ought to bear the burdens of strangers in obedience to that of the apostle, bear ye one another's burdens, how much more that of our wives and husbands. The Christian husband ought not only to keep himself from any defilement, but to be careful not to give others occasion of defilement for so is their sin imputed to him who gave the occasion. Whoso then, by putting away his wife, gives another man occasion of committing adultery, is condemned for that crime himself. Augustine. Yea, more, he declares the man who marries her, who has put away an adulterer. Chrysostom. Say not here, it is enough her husband has put her away. For even after she put away, she continues the wife of him that put her away. Augustine, the apostle has fixed the limit here, requiring her to abstain from a fresh marriage as long as her husband lives. After his death, he allows her to marry. But if the woman may not marry while her former husband is alive, much less may she yield herself to unlawful indulgences. But this command of the Lord, forbidding to put away a wife, 
is not broken by him who lives with her not carnally but spiritually in that more blessed wedlock of those that keep themselves chaste a question also here arises as to what is that fornication which the lord allows as a cause of divorce whether carnal sin or according to the scripture use of the word any unlawful passion as adultery avarice in short all transgression of the law by forbidden desires or if the apostle permits the divorce of a wife if she be unbelieving though indeed it is better not to put her away and the lord forbids any divorce but for the cause of fornication unbelief even must be fornication and if unbelief be fornication and idolatry unbelief and covetousness idolatry it is not to be doubted that covetousness is fornication and if covetousness be fornication who may say of any kind of unlawful desire that it is not a kind of fornication id yet i would not have the reader think this disputation of ours sufficient in a matter so arduous for not every sin is spiritual fornication nor does god destroy every sinner for he hears his saints daily crying to him forgive us our debts but every man who goes a-whoring and forsakes him him he destroys whether this be the fornication for which divorce is allowed is a most naughty question for it is no question at all that it is allowed for the fornication by carnal sin id if any affirm that the only fornication for which the lord allows divorce is that of carnal sin he may say that the lord has spoken of believing husbands and wives forbidding either to leave the other except for fornication id not only does he permit to put away a wife who commits fornication but whoso puts away a wife by whom he is driven to commit fornication puts her away for the cause of fornication both for his own sake and hers id he also rightly puts away his wife to whom she shall say i will not be your wife unless you get me money by robbery or should require any other crime to be done by him if the husband here be truly penitent he will cut off the limb that offends him id nothing can be more unjust than to put away a wife for fornication and yourselves to be guilty of that sin for then is that happened wherein thou judgest another thou condemnest thyself when he says and he who marrieth her who is put away committeth adultery the question arises does the woman also in this case commit adultery for the apostle directs either that she remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband there is this difference in the separation namely which of them was the cause of it if the wife put away the husband and marry another she appears to have left her first husband with the desire of change which is an adulterous thought but if she have been put away by her husband yet he who marries her commits adultery how can she be quit of the same guilt and further if he who marries her commits adultery she is the cause of his committing adultery which is what the lord here is forbidding verse thirty three through thirty seven again ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time thou shalt not forswear thyself but shalt perform unto the lord thine oaths but i say unto you swear not at all neither by heaven for it is god's throne nor by the earth for it is his footstool 
neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Gloss. The Lord has hitherto taught to abstain from injuring our neighbor, forbidding anger with murder, lust with adultery, and the putting away a wife with a bill of divorce. He now proceeds to teach to abstain from injury to God, forbidding not only perjury as evil in itself, but even all oaths as the cause of evil, saying, Ye have heard it said by them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself. It is written in Leviticus, Thou shalt not forswear thyself in my name, and that they should not make gods of the creature. They are commanded to render to God their oaths, and not to swear by any creature. Render to the Lord thy oaths. That is, if you shall have occasion to swear, you shall swear by the Creator, and not by the creature. As it is written in Deuteronomy, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and shalt swear by his name. Jerome, this was allowed under the law, as to children, as they offered sacrifice to God, that they might not do it to idols. So they were permitted to swear by God, not that the thing was right, but that it were better done to God than to demons. Pseudo Chrysostom, for no man can swear often, but he must sometimes forswear himself, as he who has a custom of speaking will sometimes speak foolishly. Augustine, inasmuch as the sin of perjury is a grievous sin, it must be further removed from it who uses no oath than he who is ready to swear on every occasion. And the Lord would rather that we should not swear and keep close to the truth than that swearing we should come near to perjury. Id. This precept also confirms the righteousness of the Pharisees, not to forswear, inasmuch as he who swears not at all cannot forswear himself. But as to call God to witness is to swear. Does not the apostle break this commandment when he says several times to the Galatians, the things which I write unto you, behold before God, I lie not. So the Romans, God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit. Unless perhaps someone may say, it is no oath unless I use the form of swearing by some object, and that the apostle did not swear in saying, God is my witness. It is ridiculous to make such a distinction. Yet the apostle has used even this form, I die daily by your boasting. That this does not mean your boasting has caused my daily dying, but is an oath, is clear from the Greek, which is metin eumeteran havrisen, id. But what we could not understand by mere words from the conduct of the saints, we may gather in what sense should be understood what might easily be drawn the contrary way, unless explained by example. The apostle has used oaths in his epistles, and by this shows us how that ought to be taken. I say unto you, swear not at all, namely, lest by allowing ourselves to swear at all, we come to readiness in swearing. From readiness we come to a habit of swearing, and from a habit of swearing we fall into perjury. And so the apostle is not found to have used an oath, but only in writing, and greater thought and caution which that requires, not allowing of slip of the tongue. 
yet the lord's command is so universal swear not at all that he would seem to have forbidden it even in writing but since it would be an impiety to accuse paul of having violated this precept especially in his epistles we must understand the word at all as implying that as far as lies in your power you should not make a practice of swearing not aim at it as a good thing in which you should take delight id therefore in his writings as writing allows of greater circumspection the apostle is found to have used an oath in several places that none might suppose that there is any direct sin in swearing what is true but only that our weak hearts are better preserved from perjury by abstaining from all swearing whatsoever jerome lastly consider that the saviour does not here forbid to swear by god but by the heaven the earth by jerusalem by a man's head for this evil practice of swearing by the elements the jews had always and are thereof often accused in the prophetic writings for he who swears shows either reverence or love for that by which he swears thus when the jews swore by the angels by the city of jerusalem by the temple and the elements they paid to the creature the honor and worship belonging to god but it is commanded in the law that we should not swear but by the lord our god augustine or it is added by the heaven etc because the jews did not consider themselves bound when they swore by such things as if he had said when you swear by the heaven and the earth think not that you do not owe your oath to the lord your god for you are proved to have sworn by him whose throne the heaven is and the earth his footstool which is not meant as though god had such limbs set upon heaven and the earth after the manner of a man who is sitting but that seat signifies god's judgment of us and since in the whole extent of this universe it is the heaven that has the highest beauty god is said to sit upon the heavens as showing divine power to be more excellent than the most surpassing show of beauty and he is said to stand upon the earth as putting to lowest use a lesser beauty spiritually by the heavens are denoted holy souls by the earth the sinful seeing he that is spiritual judgeth all things but to the sinner it is said earth thou art and unto earth thou shalt return and he who would abide under a law is put under a law and therefore he adds it is the footstool of his feet neither by jerusalem for it is the city of the great king this is better said than it is mine though it is understood to mean the same and because he is also truly lord whoso swears by jerusalem owes his oath to the lord neither by thy head what could any think more entirely his own property than his own head but how is it ours when we have not power to make one hair black or white whoso then swears by his own head also owes his vows to the lord and by this the rest may be understood chrysostom note how he exalts the elements of the world not from their own nature but from the respect which they have to god so that there is opened no occasion of idolatry Robanus. having forbidden swearing he instructs us how we ought to speak let your speech be yea yea nay nay that is to affirm anything 
it is sufficient to say it is so to deny to say it is not so or yea yea nay nay are therefore twice repeated that what you affirm with the mouth you should prove indeed and what you deny in word you should not establish by your conduct hilary otherwise they who live in the simplicity of the faith have not need to swear with them ever what is is what is not is not by this their life and their conversation are ever preserved in truth jerome therefore evangelic verity does not admit an oath since the whole discourse of the faith is instead of an oath augustine and he who has learned that an oath is to be reckoned not among things good but among things necessary will restrain himself as much as he may not to use an oath without necessity unless he sees men loth to believe what it is for their good they should believe without the confirmation of an oath this then is good and to be desired that our conversation be only yea yea nay nay for what is more than this cometh of evil that is if you are compelled to swear you know that it is by the necessity of their weakness to whom you would persuade anything which weakness is surely an evil what is more than this is thus evil not that you do evil in this just use of an oath to persuade another of something beneficial for him but it is an evil in him whose weakness thus obligates you to use an oath persostum or of evil that is from the weakness to whom the law permitted the use of an oath not that by this the old law is signified to be from the devil but he leads us from the old imperfection to the new abundance end of chapter five verse twenty seven through thirty seven